If you'll open up your Bibles to Romans 13, that will be our primary passage this morning. Romans chapter 13. And once you get there, if you'll go ahead and stand as we read the first eight verses of Romans chapter 13. Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. All right, let's pray real quick. Dear Father, we praise you for your scripture. We praise you for the sufficiency of scripture that addresses all areas of our lives. Lord, we pray that you'll give us insight this morning and discussion that will lead us to looking for how we can glorify you, even in this seemingly secular realm of government. Father, we pray for your wisdom, and we pray that we'll glorify you in our thoughts and our conversations this morning. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So Romans 13, this passage, its primary purpose is to instruct believers' attitudes towards government. And in doing so, Paul not only instructs us what we should do, but he provides an explanation of why this should be our attitude. And he also gives, uh, also given our unique political context there are multiple significant points of attitudinal and behavioral applications here. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three main principles of the passage, and then we're going to look at three reactions we should have. So just in case you're uh, trying to keep track, three principles and three reactions. And then we'll have um, an extended time of discussion and prayer uh, at your table to kind of flesh these out a little bit more. So... The first principle that we're looking at in this passage is God is sovereign over government. In verse 1, Paul clearly states, there is no authority except from God. Paul gives us this undeniable maxim that all governing authorities have been put into power by God. So when we look at, and this should not be surprising, because when we look at the whole biblical account uh, uh, of history, the historical parts and, and the instructional uh, in the New Testament, we, we see that God was intimately involved 
in the affairs of nations, in the succession of kings, and even in the disposition of government leaders. So just for a exam- few examples, we could look at Pharaoh, uh, or we could look at Nebuchadnezzar, or Darius, and we see God is directly involved in these governmental affairs. Also, we see that God is the one who established the very institution of human civil government. Um, in, in Genesis 9, 5 through 6, following the flood, God actually gives the authority to man to govern. Um, and that doesn't, that's the noetic uh, covenant. So that applies to all humankind, not just believers. So these examples support this notion that Paul is at here, that nobody is in control or secures a position of control or leadership unless God at least permits it. And we see the biblical account is actually a little more strong than that. He actually puts them in, in place. So almost all of, and this is a problem, <laughs> this, this, this maxim is a problem because all of, uh, almost all of our affirmations of God's sovereignty are quickly met with tough questions. Um, we, we claim that God is sovereign in some area of our life and then immediately we're forced with a really tough situation to, to grapple with. So we say God is sovereign over the conception and the growth of our unborn children. And God is sovereign over the health of our wives in pregnancy. What's the tough question that immediately hits us and hits our congregation? Then why are there miscarriages? Then why are there deformities and these things that break our heart and breaks our fellowship's heart? God is sovereign over my job. He's sovereign over my financial situation for my family. Then why didn't I get that? pay raise? Why am I uh, going to have to get a second job? Why was I laid off? So, so when we affirm the sovereignty of God, we're met with real and tough questions. And, and this similarly, we see that here. This point that God appoints, uh, that there's no authority except from God, it takes on new significance and difficulty given the political context throughout human history. Because it's an inescapable fact that wherever you find yourself, You have to affirm that God has at least permitted the authority that governs over you. And this is extremely difficult to think about our brothers in the faith uh, around the world, like Pastor Yosef and those in Asia, who are governed by unjust and abusive governments that are actually hostile to the gospel. So so this is an extremely tough question, and it's one that we should continue to have. Um, But but I want to address it through how Paul would would address it. And, and Paul isn't going to back down from this sovereignty claim. That's never our response to these challenges about miscarriage or losing a job. Our response is always to trust in, in the graciousness of God and then see actually what the biblical um, counsel is. And, and that's what we see here. So this passage in the past, the fallacy has been, this passage has been used to justify tyrants. And it's it's been used to demand unconditional obedience to any civil authority. So any civil rebellion is not moral. Uh, and that, and just in case you're interested, that's a view called legal positivism. This would mean that the foundation of our very nation, the Revolutionary War, was a sin, right? This, this means that even our state's independence in the Texan Revolution was a sin because it was against a civil government. It was an act against civil government. Well, obviously, we don't want to say that, but are we just shaping scripture to our patriotism. Well, let, let's make sure we're not. Uh, Paul is, what Paul's doing here is he's condemning rebellion in the name of Christian freedom. Paul's point, is that, is, Paul's point here is to instruct our default disposition towards government. 
So let, let's not misrepresent Paul's command. If you look at verse 1, that verb, let every person be subject to governing authorities, let's be careful. That verb is not, uh, it, it's not the verb to obey. It is actually the verb to subject or submit or to put yourself in a subordinate's position. So this is not necessarily blindly obeying the state, whatever the state requires of a citizen, even uh, if it comes to the point where it would be against a command of God or against our conscience that God has blessed us with. So, so these types of conflicts need to be paid attention to, and I, I suggest that we continue to have these conversations. What does civil disobedience look like? Okay, civil diso- just looking at our history, okay, looking at the civil rights movement, uh, civil di- disobedience was necessary. Looking at the practice of slavery, c- civil disobedience was necessary. And some are arguing today that given the Holocaust of abortion, civil disobedience in certain situations is necessary. Okay, now I have a lot to say about that last point. However, the point is, this is not a blindly obedience. Look at verse 5 when you're considering this, and Paul's use of conscience is a good point to focus our, uh, our discussions on in other, in other contexts, and I encourage you to keep looking at that. Also, let, let's not be too foolish here to think that Paul was unaware of this. I mean, Paul was aware of the unjust process and the corrupt political compromise that was agreed upon in order to crucify Jesus. Pontius Pilate played politics. What he did, if you look at the trial of Jesus, what was supposed to be a trial of Jesus, okay? He, he uh, compromised and he caved and he made a political deal in order to put Christ on the cross, okay? Yet, none of us would claim Pontius Pilate was not appointed by God and to rule in that situation, right? So Paul, Paul's point is that even the misuse of authority does not alter the fact that God is the one who gave them that authority. And first and foremost, we should be mindful of the government's role of the servants of God. Now, just like those tough situations like Pastor Yosef, our context is, 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 uh, in, is very difficult as well, and, and it takes on significance here, but not of remorse like our believers in Asia, but in responsibility. See, as it's already been referred to a couple of times this morning uh, on, on the quotes and in the conversations I've heard, we live in a democratic republic where the supreme political authority has been granted to the citizens. It's been granted to us. We're entitled to vote, which is the driving force of our government. So because we have a representative system of a legislative branch, an executive branch, uh, that are directly chosen by citizens, and then we even have a judicial branch that is indirectly chosen by us because it's appointed by the president and affirmed by the Senate, which both of which we vote for. Because of this, we are directly accountable for our government. Given the system, we as citizens, all of us here, are the governing authorities. We have this responsibility. So the analogy here would be uh, if we had, uh, if, if you were born into a royal family or a monarch. So if we have King Dale from the royal family of stone ciphers was put in the mo- monarchy, right? Well, we would clearly say that God sovereignly appointed him there. And we would say that his attitude in that role should not be to give up the throne, to, to you know, hand it off to somebody else, 
but to take that responsibility and try to seriously rule in light of the gospel. And that's the analogy that we're in. We have been put on the throne, so to speak. We have been given the political authority. So that's number one. And we'll come back to that, that analogy with King Dale and, and you know, King Reswes if we're thinking about being on the throne. Okay, so that, that's the first point. God is sovereign over government. And that has some implications that we'll talk about later. Number two, government authorities are servants of God. Paul repeats this point multiple times. Not only does God institute and appoint these leaders in verse 1 and 2, but look at verse 4. For he, the governing authority, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Then even in verse 6, Paul goes as far as refers to governing authorities as ministers of God. And this Greek term is actually the same word used for priests. And it's used uh, not just in the Septuagint, but in the New Testament as priests. And then um, the, the verb form of this term is ministering to God, which is given to the apostles. It says the apostles ministered to God. So the kind of work that the apostles were doing in relationship to God, Paul is relating that to what the uh, what our governing authorities are. They're ministers of God. So governments, it's very clear. The maxim is here, governments work for God. Okay, so go ahead and turn to 1 Peter 2, 13. And we'll look at that in just a second. So we see God practicing authority over his servants or his ministers. Uh, and one of the ways that we see God practicing his authority is by clarifying that God has actually ordered the purpose of government in verse 4. So, we see God has appointed the work of government for the people's good. And the, that purpose is to punish bad conduct and distribute God's wrath. Now in 1 Peter 2, Peter gives us a little bit easier, uh, sorry, he gives us a little bit easier um, phrase to hang on to. And that's why I want you to look here because it's a good verse to memorize and use in our discussions about government. 1 Peter 2:13. Uh, we see, uh, for, thir- sorry, verse 13 begins, Uh, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as uh, supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So this phrase should become common day in our vocabulary when we talk about government, when we talk about the presidency, the election, uh, whether a law is good or not, that the purpose of government is to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Good. Okay, we should have that on hand because that's going to be a guiding principle when we start looking at what's a biblical law, what's, who's a biblical candidate. You know, this. So the important point here is that given that the governments of earth are not autonomous, that they're not self-sufficient, uh, their, authority, sorry, their purpose and scope of power is also restrained by God. He not only limits what kings can do, which we see through the Old Testament, he says what kings should do. He doesn't just keep them from doing bad things. He instructs them that they should be uh, punishing evil and praising good. So government carries out God's will, and this is a great, back to Romans 13, verse 4. I, I love the Greek here because Paul is telling us government carries out God's will in the form of punishing evil uh, even with the sword. And, and the literal and emphatic reading of the Greek here is, uh, it's be continually afraid because he, the governing authority, regularly bears the sword and it's not for nothing. 
I mean, that's, that's the way that Paul is putting this, is constantly be afraid because I've given him the sword to use it. I've given him the sword to not just to threaten you with it, uh, but actually to use it. So anyway, he's got a sword for a reason. So that, that's number two. Is, uh, so one is God is sovereign over government. Um, number two, that governmental authorities are servants of God. And number three is politics is a means to love our neighbor. Number three, when we see in this passage, the third main principle of this passage is that uh, politics is a means to love our neighbor. Now, if we're looking back at that throne and King Dale is sitting there and he reads this passage and he, he would probably conclude, I need to make sure that as a king, I fulfill the biblical role of government. I need to make sure that my royal decisions are punishing evil, praising good, working for the ultimate good of my people. I mean, that would be, that's what we would hope King Dale would come, the conclusion we would hope he would come to if he's sitting on the throne, if God sovereignly put him in a monarch, okay? Well, given where God has providentially put us politically, this should also be our thinking. We have the example of Paul, who uses his political rights as a Roman citizen, not to keep himself from harm or get better treatment when he's imprisoned, but so that he may better spread the gospel in Acts 22 through 28. So we see this example um, that because he used his political rights, God had sovereignly given Paul, uh, he, that allowed the gospel to be spread all the way to Rome and possibly even further west. So God providentially used this political right of Paul's to spread the gospel. Now, one thing I want to uh, one thing that's really interesting, and um, I can give you guys more details about this um, following because it's, a, it's a, something we should really be contemplating, but there have been multiple studies trying to figure out what percentage of all humans have ever lived on earth throughout history who have enjoyed something we roughly classify as free. How many people throughout human history have been relatively free? And I'm not even talking about our constitution, but simple freedoms like self-government, race and ethnic equality, fundamental legal rights like due process, a rule of law, which is just equal access to courts or even equal access to police. Um, and this is, what, this is what the studies have found. Out of history of all humans, only an, there have been an estimated 110, uh, sorry, okay, so out of the history of an estimated 110 billion humans, okay, so we've had 110 billion humans who have lived on Earth, only 4.5% have lived under relatively free consequences. Circumstances, sorry. Only 4.5 have lived under relatively free circumstances. This is not even to mention the unparalleled freedom that we have, like freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of religion, which are unheard of throughout human history. So we're looking at this fact that more than 95% of all humans, including the majority of Christians, have lived under tyranny, exploitation, and grotesque violations of just the basic human rights. <laughs> I mean, that, at the very least, this emphasizes we should adopt Paul's attitude, that we should use our legal rights and our exceptional political power that God has entrusted us with to expand the message of the gospel. And we should use that power and those rights as a way to live out the gospel in 
loving our neighbor. Now, I know this connection is not often talked about, and it sounds odd. Politics, love. How are those connected? No, when you think of politics, you think of people screaming at each other. You think of people, uh, two sides of the screen, who are trying to interrupt each other and trying to call each other names. That's what you think of for politics, and you should. And then you think of love, and you think of what we're trying to do here this morning, trying to encourage each other, trying to help each other, trying to get each other closer to God and glorify God in their life decisions. Um, so that, that's an odd connection, uh, love and politics. But there are at least three connections of politics and loves that we should be mindful of and reflect on. And the first one is actually just homework. Uh, it's the contextual connection. So I challenge you all to look at how starting in chapter 12 of Romans, Paul goes straight from talking about a life that is pleasing to the Lord to talking about government and then back to talking about loving one's neighbor. What's Paul's logic here? So, so that's a bit of homework. Um, how do those three connections from the end of chapter 12 to the end of, chap- uh, of chapter 13, what's Paul's logic of going into those topics? So the second, so that one's, you know, I haven't given you much. That one's an assignment. That's number one. Number two is the overarching call for Christians to be defined by loving our neighbor. Politics and love should be connected in our minds because of this overarching call. Now, in the last several months, Dusty, Wes, and of course, Brett have been repeatedly and unmistakably making the case that Christians should pursue love the most excellent way in all that we do. So we should have that automatic goal and challenge in every area of our life, every duty, every role, every position of our life. And our political engagement, uh, of course, is no exception to this command. To love one another with brotherly affection that we see just a chapter before where we are here in Romans, in Romans 12, 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Well, you know, that, that should probably mean in politics too, right? So we have that overarching. But then the third point, the third connection between love and politics is this explicit textual connection between government and love in verse 4 by the use of the term your good. Verse 4, he says, the purpose of the government is to, uh, that he is a servant, he is God's servant for your good. This concept of working for someone else's good should automatically make us think of the task of loving others, right? Um, remember the working definition that Brett, Brett has given us for love in the last few months is a deep affection for the ultimate good of another in God so that we sacrificially, uh, sacrificially uh, spend ourselves to obtain that good in God. Okay? So this definition that we've been talking about Sunday after Sunday, that, we, uh, that love is this deep affection for the ultimate good of another in God, well, when we see Paul say the government's supposed to be looking out for people's goods and working towards people's goods, that sounds like love. That should automatically take us back to Paul's context, which is surrounded by the topic of love, contextually. So, so putting some of these pieces together in verse 4, government officials, including voters, are God's servants for people's good. Now, so this is interesting, and this is a unique uh, political philosophical point that even exalted rulers, all the exalted rulers of the earth, uh, 
and no matter how esteemed they seem, they're nothing but lowly servants before God. What Paul has done by saying this is he is in one fell swoop, he has torn government off its pedestal, okay, that it often puts itself on, right? Our politicians are good at that. And it makes these governmental officials who like to be lifted up, it's made them servants of God for the government's subjects, for the people it rules over. This good language also reminds us of Romans 8, 28, of course. All things are work. God is using all things uh, to work for the, the good of believers. What is meant by good here? Well, I would encourage you if you, uh, I, I would encourage you to look back at 8.28 and then 12.9. And this good is most likely spiritual and material, like we see in 1 Timothy 2.2, or what it refers to in 1 Timothy 2.2. So this good is, is not just material good. It is also spiritual good. Now, how is political action used to love our neighbors practically? How can legalizing noodling, which we've talked about, how can that possibly be a way of loving my neighbor? You think, well, my, my neighbor loves to fish. You know, he loves to be out in the wild. No. So let, let's think about that. How political action is used to love our neighbors? Okay, how do we do this? Well, one way, we vote for candidates that will punish evil, praise good, and pass good legislation. And the way that this gets to love, the way that this shows love for our neighbor, is um, that whenever we vote or work for a good and just law or policy, it does three things for my neighbor. Okay? Whenever we're putting in place a good policy or we're voting for a candidate who will put in place good, good laws or policies, we see that it, it does two things. It protects my neighbor. Okay? It punishes evil, makes sure that my neighbor is protected from you know, murder, theft, these things. It, so and it would punish those that would do those to my neighbor. So it protects my neighbor. It benefits my neighbor. Okay, it praises and encourages good. Tax credits for having children. Well, that is incentivizing my neighbor to follow the, God, the God-given command to be fruitful and multiply, right? Okay, well, that, that seems to be the type of logic we should be using when looking at these policies, okay? So it protects my neighbor. It benefits my neighbor by praising and encouraging good, and then it teaches my neighbor. The law, good laws and policies teach my neighbor. Just like we see the Old Testament does, the Old Testament law does for us theologically. Okay, uh, Paul talks about the Old Testament law is our teacher. It is used to convict us of right and wrong, to establish our sensitivities towards right and wrong. So also civil law does. If something is illegal, your first reaction is to say, well, why is that wrong? If something is legalized, like noodling, your first question is, well, why is that good for our society? So, so it is a teacher. The law is a teacher. So by passing good and just laws and policies, we're teaching my neighbor. And that is part of, which is not the point here, but that is part of the foundation for the gospel that we can talk about how some of these teach the law as teacher does. Um, and this is extremely that, that third point, teaching my neighbor, is extremely important uh, in my field of bioethics because most people won't be in a laboratory uh, convi- uh, in the circumstances where they could be tempted to do stem cell research or in the hospital where they're tempted to pull the plug uh, from one of their patients as a doctor. But it is a teacher, and it is teaching them something fundamental about the biblical principles of the value of life by making these things illegal. So... Um, 
this exact, this, the actual exact examination of each law and judging whether this law or policy is really good for my neighbor, that's tough. I mean, that's absolutely tough, and I try to do that. And since I've been convicted through um, Brett's sermons, I've been trying to do that more and more, even with things that I lobby for um, and, and things and laws that I write for our legislature. But, but that aside, that it's a tough task, it's, it's, we've established here, and Paul establishes that should be the task we're doing, right? That should be the questions that we're asking, is are these kinds of considerations what drives our political affairs and our civil duties? Okay, so uh, a little bit of application in there, but there's three explicit applications we want to give before we go into discussion. So three applications on, um, based off of these three main principles. The three applications, the first one is to give due recognition to governmental authorities as God representatives. We should start thinking of our government officials as God's representatives. That's one simple application. It's a way of thinking, a way of viewing our governmental authorities. So again, we're not misinterpreting Paul's command here. It's subject to the authorities, not obey the authorities. We see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego participating in civil disobedience as well as the apostle, um, as well as the apostles themselves in Acts 5, 29. Um, we even see Paul's disposition when he says that he's got to obey God rather than man when conflicts arise. He, he doesn't just say that. He, he does it several times um, in, through his actions. So it's not a servile, so we're not, the application is not to just have a lowly um, kind of automatic disposition that whatever my president says I have to do, whatever my governor says I have to do. But the application is recognizing just like I'm a servant and a representative of Christ, so also is my governing authority in a different way, but he has been put there by God. And that place that God has put him in authority over me, that requires me to respect him and gen- have a generous disposition towards him. When he does something, I should, I should think, it, how is he achieving God's purpose here? How is he spreading the gospel through loving neighbor, me, uh, helping me love my neighbor, and then him also just in the policy, loving my neighbor? That should be our first response. Even if he's from the other political party, that should be our first response. This point uh, is that um, resistance to legitimate authority legitimately exercised is wrong. It is wrong to resist a legitimate authority who has legitimately exercised their authority. Um, so, so that's one. So that is a way we think about government and then a way we immediately react to government authorities. Number two, what, and number two is kind of what we should do. We should serve as God's servants in our civil duties. So this is just, we should do our civil duties. We should participate in politics. We should vote. Um, we should use the sovereignly given political position that we have in voting, in lobbying, in promoting just laws and policies, possibly running for office, and even paying our taxes. That is a way that we serve God in our civil duties. And I know we hate, we hate taxes. Um, it's, it's a four-letter word now. However, it's noteworthy that when Paul uses the word tax here, he doesn't use the typical word for tax. He actually uses another term that's closer to tribute, a tax that people had to pay when they were conquered, like uh, we see in Romans 20, uh, I'm sorry, in Luke 20, 22. 
So this type of tax was even more hated. If you think in the Tea Party environment we are, we hate taxes. Well, think about having to give a tax because you were just conquered by some guy. Okay, that, that's even more of a despiteful type of situation. And Paul uses that word. He says it's, it was usually hated, but Paul means all kinds of taxes, even the ones you really, really don't like. That is a way that you are showing your respect for God's servant, and that is a way that you are actually doing your civil duty. Do them joyfully. Encourage others to do them and see them as a ministry, whether it's voting, whether it's lobbying for a law, whether it's uh, promoting a law, or whether it's running for office and paying taxes. We should do them joyfully because in this scope that Paul's given us, we don't have an, an excuse not to joyfully do it because Paul has told us we're actually uh, being the servants of God and we're actually supporting a government which has been appointed by God. Then the last one on number two, uh, what we should do as God's servants is pray for our government authorities, including other citizens. Okay, we're not just thinking about President Obama or Governor Perry uh, or Senator Hancock or Senator uh, Davis who represent this area. No, other citizens, remember, they have the political authority, and actually they're the ones who are going to make the most difficult decision uh, in 100 days in the election. Okay? They have an extremely important decision. Voters have an extremely important decision to make in November, and we need to pray that the citizens, whether the believers or not, will make a wise decision that will resort in punishing evil, praising good, and seeking the good of uh, Americans and those abroad. How, and then, so that's number two, is that we should just do it. We should do our civil duties. We should serve as God's servants. And then number three is how we should do it. We should seek to punish good and praise, sorry, we should seek to punish evil and praise good and the good of our neighbor when doing our civil duty. And this may sound odd that we love our neighbor by punishing evil. Um, but just in Romans 12, 9, Paul says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast what is good. So Paul thought it was possible to be a genuinely loving and wanting evil to be punished. You know, if you were on a jury and it was very clear that someone broke the law or very clear that someone murdered someone, would the loving thing be to let them off the hook? Would the loving thing be to dismiss the murder? No, we, we see that's not true. Um, do we see, and this is, this, is, this is a part that really a lot of conversation needs to go on, is exactly how does loving my neighbor translate into policies? And some have advocated, well, loving your neighbor means more entitlement programs, more money to, uh, to those unemployed, more money to those of low income, um, you know, just give people money. That's the loving thing to do. And actually, the Catholic Church is actively lobbying our government and our state government on that premise. Jesus says, love your neighbor. That means, you know, uh, making more people qualify for government programs. Now, is that the right application? Well, what are some things that we need to think about? We need to think about biblical principles. Okay, and this is uh, not an easy topic, obviously, but we need to think about biblical principles. And there are people that that's the way we love them, but there are some people that need a little dose of biblical principles, is that a man who does not work does not eat. So, I mean, these are the types of conversations we need to have. 
and I know I've gotten in trouble here because I'm sure a lot of people uh, have a lot to say about entitlement programs and that, but this is the type of thinking we should be involved in of how am I loving my neighbor? And it's not just to give them what they want, not just they did something evil, look the other way. It is to punish good, to, to pray, sorry, to punish evil, I said it again, to punish evil, to praise good, and seek the good of Americans, which may be um, something uh, like punishing. So, um, so we need to reflect on laws, policies, and elections. And we need to ask, how will this policy, how will this candidate punish evil and praise good? This affects what laws and policies will support, what we think about candidates, and even how we read Judge Drudge Report, our Huffington Post, okay, and the news, right? When you're looking at the headline of a Drudge Report, what's your first question? Is your first question, you know, is the person saying this on my side of the political uh, aisle? Okay, it, that, that's our first reaction. You know, who is this? Oh, it's Obama, he must have done something wrong, right? He, he said something, you know, he must have been wanting to do something uh, to hurt Americans, hurt citizens, not to look out for their good. That's our first reaction. Our first reaction is, okay, the president did something. He said something. Does that punish evil? Does it praise good? Does it work for the good of, uh, of the citizens? Okay, that should be our first question. Not what political party they are, who their allegiance is to, and, and whether we agree with all of their political views. So, so that's extremely tall order, especially for someone who, uh, especially for where we are now, where our media is always in our face, and it's actually written in a way to make us think uh, in these very unbiblical terms, instead of looking at whether it's um, punishing evil and praising good. Um, for me, when I'm in the state government, this is what it looks like for me, is whenever I hear a vote, I, now I just work with bioethics, I just work with abortion, stem cell research, um, and, uh, and other related things that have to do with the sanctity of life. That's my focus, but I'm in the Capitol and I hear about a lot of other things. The debate about toll roads versus uh, gas taxes. Okay, that's a big debate that's going on about sources of water. Can we take water from this county to you know, benefit this county? I'm, I hear all these discussions, and this is what it looks like for me is I need to stop and not, not think about, well, you know, this, this representative is arguing that side and she's a Democrat, so I, I, I can't agree with that. No, that, that's, you know, that's what I'm tempted to say, but this is the way I think I have to think about it, is that will this policy help my neighbor attain, uh, will it help my neighbor? Will it help them attain their good in God? You know, is this policy going to praise good? What does this policy say is the value to my neighbor? If my neighbor was to hear about this policy or the law, would it teach them something biblical? Would it protect them? Okay, these are the types of things that is not politically political in nature, but it is gospel in nature. Because I'm using these laws and I'm looking at government as an instrument to love my neighbor and um, instead of to win a political fight or in order to have a victory. Let every person be subject to governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. All those, have, uh, all those that exist have been instituted by God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we praise you uh, 
for your scripture. We praise you for using uh, your servant Paul to explain this tough issue for us, Father. We pray that you will open up our minds and our hearts uh, this time, that we'll be able to reflect on how to love our neighbor, how to spread the gospel through our actions uh, and through our words, in even this context of government. Father, we pray for uh, your insight, and we pray that we'll glorify you with our thoughts and our conversations this morning. 